0: attitude was we'll give you stuff that will make your life easier but your life will be hard and you'll be oppressed and we won't help you use what abilities you do have it just emphasizes to me the mental limitations put upon people with disabilities
1: John Willis was born without fully formed arms and legs and grew up in a time where there were no opportunities for someone like him to play sports.
0: I don't think I was easily sidelined as to, I wasn't even thought of as being sidelined. I was never going to be on the pitch to be sidelined off it.
1: In a bid to change this, John set up the charity Power To Inspire, with the mission to provide opportunities for everyone to play sport together, regardless of their ability or disability.
0: People love to be included. We're tribal and we like to be part of the tribe. We don't like to be sat on the side. If you ever watch kids in a playground, you'll always be amazed at how they change the rules to reflect the abilities of those who play. That's what we do.
1: To celebrate the charity's 10-year anniversary, John embarks on an eight-day paddle down the River Thames linking up with different paddling communities and partnering with different people along the way.
0: Seeing and experiencing nature from the river is just fantastic. And not many people have kayaked 108 miles, and that's quite nice to be able to put on the internal CV.
1: In this conversation, we discuss what it was like for John growing up in a world where he had no disabled role models to inspire him on what could be possible. Yet John is no stranger to challenging himself. He has completed a triathlon with able bodies and celebrated not coming last. He once completed 50 1,000-metre swims across 100 days, all while touring the UK and speaking in schools. And in the lead-up to the Rio Olympics, he tried every single sport that the Olympics feature. It
0: taught me that my physical Limitations weren't a barrier. I could actually adapt the sports and do the sports regardless.
1: That's all coming up on episode 12 of Great British Adventures. Uh, you've been this morning for a swim. After this conversation, you're going to play golf. Uh, is being physically active important for you? Absolutely.
0: I think as a disabled person, it's probably even more important. It's so easy to be um, just restricted and sit, sit still for too long in the day. I also was brought up by my parents and they were very active. Uh, they met playing hockey, so um, sport was always much part of uh, our lives. My mother was a PE teacher. So being active, being out and about was very, very important. Um, and I've managed to keep swimming for many, many years. I worked out that it's 25 and a half years that I've been going to the same swimming pool, and most weeks I manage two or three times a week. I'd aim for five, but never quite make it. You mentioned your disability. How do you describe yourself? So I was born in 1960 without fully formed arms and legs, I have one elbow, which uh, I think allows my right arm to finish just below the elbow. The left arm is just above the elbow and my two legs are actually through the knee. Um, I don't have any lower leg at all, but
1: I'm unusual in that I can actually walk on my stumps. You mentioned you were born this way. From what I've heard you say before, you don't entirely know why. No, apparently when I was
0: born, every test under the sun was carried out on me and there was a, in a sort of sort of slightly morbid way, there was a rather funny exchange apparently between the doctors who kept on saying that it was mighty obvious uh, that there was something wrong with me and the guys in the laboratory who kept on saying nothing wrong with him. There, there was no... Um, no, no physical reasons at all. I haven't had tests more recently. I quite like the mystery
1: of it. I suppose now. I was going to say because I mean, to this day, science has evolved so much in the last sixty years that you've been yeah. alive. Is there any curiosity to find um, some answer to uh, well, what what went on in that early process uh, before you were born?
0: I suppose that it's a risk and reward. I can't see that there are many rewards out of it. There might be some risks in terms of uh, learning about my own mortality. More now, um, it might be about what my parents did or didn't do. Uh, I prefer just to carry on not knowing. What was your relationship when with your parents growing up? Um, extremely good. Um. After the shock of me being born and they went away to Scotland and left me with my godparents who were fantastic, absolutely brilliant. Uh, After that first week, they came to terms with it and were utterly brilliant. Um, My mother there came up with a phrase, there's no such word as can't, John. And so that was inculcated into me that I just had to get on with life. Uh, there were very, very few adaptions in our house to compensate for my disability. Uh, we moved when I was 10 down to the West Country from London. And I think I had about three or four things. Uh, I had an extended uh, cord on the light switch so I could actually pull the light on and off when I was lying in bed or sitting in bed. And the, it was an old farmhouse. So it was a latch type door handle, which I couldn't reach and couldn't operate. So my father rigged up a, another pulley system so I could pull down and it lifted up the latch. And that was about it, I think. But it was brilliant in those days to have that sort of limited adaptions because the world was seriously unadapted there were no ramps there were no everywhere were steps um there were no compensations or idea even that people with disabilities should be accepted into the norm so it was a very good training not to have those adaptations at home so your family were very quick to adapt their lives to your needs yeah yeah i mean they um although at the same time, they didn't in the sense that they didn't make... Um, I was treated as much as possible as just a, a son. There were certain things they were, they had to carry, um, ferry me around probably more than other young children, although most of my contemporaries seem to be carted about in cars rather than... Um, bicycles weren't really an, an option. Um, but no, so um, they... Life tended to also revolve around my sister's hobbies rather than mine. She rode and as in riding uh, horses and was very talented at it. Um, So my mother was very keen on riding. And so in my young teens, we went off to pony club events and all that sort of stuff. Um, And I was just there. I became a sort of unofficial scorer for the various teams that we were involved in. So I tended to know before it was announced who had come first, second, third, and fourth. And and it could actually be useful when it came to show jumping. Now, I could say, well, you've got so many fences and nobody else knew. Um, so I suppose that created a, a love of scoring and uh, Numbers And I became the cricket scorer for my school, uh, both at prep school when I went to prep school in Bristol and then at Kingswood School in Bath.
1: Did you feel that when it came to sports, you were very easily and quickly sidelined?
0: I don't think I was easily sidelined as to it was even worse than that, in the sense that I wasn't even thought of as being sidelined. I was never going to be... On the pitch to be sidelined off it, <laughs> I was well and truly. You know, you're you're just in the crowd. You're not even. You're not even possibly going to be selected. So, uh, yes, it was a bit frustrating, but it was such a fact of life. Then, if it happens to you from the age of five, you just that's the way of the world. It was very much later. I mean, I would say very much later that I realised just how unfair that was. It was just, you know, uh, we drive on the left. John doesn't play.
1: Right? So I guess in growing up that you just, that became your norm. Yes, I, I was never involved.
0: I was allowed to go and watch and participate in that sense. And I used to follow, um, I, from an early age, I became uh, a uh, cricket scorer, and then at uh, secondary school, I was very much the lead supporter of the rugby team, and I did watch a lot of hockey. Uh, but I w- i think—in hindsight, there was a even mm, even within their own constraints and the mental constraints at the time. I think there was an opportunity to have given me a microphone or to have given me a clip. Um, a mental clipboard and said, right, John, work out the tactics. Who's good here? Who's not? How do you actually improve this team? And I would have loved that. I could have been a coach at, from a, you know, the age of eight or nine, I suppose. Nobody had that imagination, not looking at what abilities I did have, because I watched an awful lot of sport. Um, if I'd been guided a bit more about you could actually be a coach from the age of, I don't know, 16, 17,
1: I'd have probably had eight years of experience, which nobody else would have had. Yeah. You obviously were very observational and that is a skill itself because sometimes people aren't necessarily watching the whole picture, but from you, that was from the get-go, you knew that that's what your job would always be. I got very excited one day when our
0: opening bowler at Kingswood School managed to, he was bowling really well, um, swinging the ball massively but he could only swing it away from the batsman. And I think he bowled two overs and 10 of them missed the outside edge, which was quite something. And he came down to, um, uh, to field at Long Leg at the next, where and right in front of the score box. And he said, this is just so frustrating. He was really cross. Um, so he must've been 17 or 18 at the time. And I said, he said, what can I do? What can I do? And I don't think he was talking to me. I said, turn the ball round." So at the beginning of the next over that he bowled, he turned the ball round, and it went gun barrel straight. And the batsman deliberately didn't play a shot at it. And sadly, it missed the off stump. It went over the
1: top. I nearly took a wicket by proxy. Did you get any recognition for that?
0: No. No, no, I was just the scorer. And yes, no sense of understanding of that. I was actually, by the time that I got into the sixth form, I was a very uh, knowledgeable observer of the game. I've always said that I'm probably the I know more about cricket and rugby than anybody else who's never played the game. I don't say in comparison to people who have played the game, but in those who have never played the game.
1: Did you ever have a desire to participate
0: in sport? Oh, definitely, desperately. Uh, From a very young age, I really, really wanted to. I played football badly um, uh, because I couldn't run very fast, as you can imagine. Um, And I was actually, uh, I was picked by proxy for, by, by accident for my house team there was a house semi-final games and they counted up the teams and there was one more for the opposition than for my house. And uh, so they came down to the second sort of enthusiasts, rubbish, enthusiast game and said, is there anybody from this particular house? And I, I was the only one. Well, you'd better come then, Willis. So I went and played and uh, I very nearly scored a goal. Um, There was a corner and I managed to get my my boot. uh, It looks a bit like um, uh, uh, a flower pot on the end of my legs in those days. And uh, I managed to direct the the ball directly from the corner um, towards the goal. Unfortunately, my best friend was in goal. And he saved it. He was actually the left winger for the team. And uh, and his second string was playing in goal. Sadly, he was playing in goal that day. Because no, no, there were only two boys in the whole school who would have saved that shot. And he was one of them. Anyway, so having done that in the game, in the semifinal, we won. Um, I was picked to play in the final, which was really funny. And... Um, I did actually, I so enjoyed it that, but then of course, um, everybody said it was a bit of a fluke and it didn't matter because it was a a house match. So that's
1: a bit frustrating. At that time, it must have meant so much to you. You were playing a real game of football against able-bodied people. Yes. Just being included as part of a team as as one of them. We had one of the best uh,
0: players in the school and I'll come to that in a minute because it was absolutely fantastic. But he, um, it, we were on the halfway line and i the ball came bouncing towards me and I said, run. And he looked at me and it bounced perfect. I could tell it was going to bounce perfectly. And I kicked it over my head and over the guy behind me's head. And there was nobody else behind me or him. And and. He did set off, but he'd set off after he'd realised, after I'd kicked it, rather than when I told him to run. Otherwise, he'd have been clear through on goal. What were the reactions? <laughs> so that was, everybody went, ah. And that goes back to the observational bit. I think that was because I knew the patterns of the play.
1: What was the reaction like from team members and the other team when you were playing I think there was a bit of shock that, oh,
0: John actually meant that. (laughs) And when I did one, uh, I I was quite good at doing a one-two so people could pass to me and I could pass it pretty accurately back to wherever they were running to. Um, Better teammates worked that out and then that, because that created space. But they didn't have the imagination that they couldn't see the skill because I never trained or practiced with them. So they didn't know. So I was just left behind, really. They were. It was, a, oh, they're there. You know, well done. That's a bit of an aberration. Uh, thank you. So those are the only two games, really, I played um, of any, any note and of football until, yeah, ever, really.
1: Well, that was, like you said, a fluke and a bit of luck that you were able to get picked, just being in the right place at the right time. Back then growing up, were there any opportunities for you to be included in sport?
0: No, Um, there was a little bit around swimming, but no, not until um, I was probably um, about 12, 13, 14, there was this slight hint that the Paralympic movement was beginning. But it, was, it wasn't a Paralympic movement, it was a wheelchair user movement. So, and wheelchairs and me are not great. You know, I can't wheel it, um, I can't go fast, I can't propel myself. Uh, and actually a lot of sports, for example, tennis, you have to propel your wheelchair. Well, I couldn't propel it and hold a racket. So that sort of thing. Um, It was never thought of uh, that I could actually compete or any. It wasn't
1: really on the radar. How were you treated growing up uh, as as someone with a disability, going about your your normal life?
0: So there was a massive um, chasm between those who knew me or my close ones, like my parents and so on, and authority. So, for example, I was. Uh, I went to the local nursery school in Dulwich. And I can't really say that I remember it, but apparently I was very happy. Um, My parents were very happy with me being there. And one day the inspectors came along and saw that I was disabled and said, this can't do. And so they said, no, he's got to go off to a special needs school, a special school. Um, And my parents complained. Other parents complained because they could see that I was fine there, and it wasn't detracting from their children's education. And this was only a nursery school. And then uh, the teachers complained, and the head teacher really complained. But no, the inspectors were absolutely adamant that I should be moved. So off I went to uh, this special needs school, where I was only taught how to be disabled. And the very much the attitude was, we'll give you um, stuff that will make your life easier, but your life will be hard and you'll be oppressed and you, we won't help you use what abilities you do have. For example, they decided that the way that I was going to write was using a typewriter with a tapper. I used to wear hooks. And the hook would have a tapper in it, which was like a small, very, very small wooden um, hammer. And it gripped that. And then I would be able to tap the keys. Quite hard, actually, because those typewriters in those days were quite, they weren't electronic, we weren't touch typing, which was really bizarre because the probably the most important thing you could write at the time was your signature. For a check, growing up, that was what the way that everybody paid money across to each other. and the biggest thing that you did in shops was pay by check. And I I've always had this imagination. so would they have expected me to carry my typewriter around on my back so that I could actually have a transaction in in, in a shop? I don't think they had any clue how to do it. The irony is that when I got to the age of 10, I, um, I'd um i taken my hooks off. I'd actually learned to write with a pencil in the hook, and it was very faint. And the only way to read it was if I wrote perfectly. So I'd used to practise and practise, and I really, really practised, and eventually you could just about see it. Um and one day I took my hooks off and I picked up the pencil between my paws, as I call them with these. I don't call them arms. You know, they're paws, a bit like Winnie the Pooh or Paddington Bear. Anyway, I picked them, picked up the pen and started writing. Uh, and and I discovered that not only could I uh, press down and get – so it was visible, but because i practiced so hard, it was pretty much perfect. Um so my teacher ended me for a competition for her handwriting competition, national one. Uh, and I came third in the whole of London when I was 10, which actually rather puts the idea of a typewriter and the limitations. The solution seemed to be in those days, we'll give you a gadget rather than actually have you got any abilities. Anyway, my father went into the school when I was, well, I must have been six, six, I guess, and said to, my, said to the head teacher of this special school, how many O-levels, and I'm giving away my age by saying O-levels, yes, they were O-levels before GCSEs, uh, will John take? And the head teacher said, now, Mr. Willis, don't be ridiculous. None of our pupils do O-levels. Uh, and my father said uh, and it was the only time that he was he when reporting the story uh, that he was ever nice about me he said um, he said but john's got a brain why can't he use it and he said don't have unrealistic amb- ambitions for your son mr willis none of our children do o levels so my parents and my grandparents uh scrimped and slaved and Put me through the independent sector, so I, I was taken out of the state sector because obviously it was going to limit me completely. I uh, went off to Diage Prep School and uh, managed to yeah, I got thirteen O levels, three A levels, and ended up at Cambridge University.
1: Wow, what an incredible turnaround from what could have happened had you stayed. Yeah,
0: but it just emphasizes to me the limitations. The mental limitations put upon people with disabilities just because I was missing a hand or two doesn't mean that you can't do uh, exams and can't use your
1: talents, whatever they be. And back then, I guess these limitations that were put on you by someone else were usually from someone who wasn't disabled. Oh, completely. Um
0: Uh, One of my uh, favourite ones was, um, they decided that um, they'd heard that I swam. I used to swim with armbands until about the age of 10, 11, when I learned to swim in a French rock pool, which is really quite a nice place to learn to swim. But anyway, I was taken down to uh, Richmond Baths back in then must have been 1966 something like that there's some fantastic pictures of me um and they decided to create uh these flippers which would get a help me to swim again classic sort of mental you could already swim by, by then oh you were comfortable uh, i was comfortable in water with armbands i right. swam a lot with armbands uh, i took a bit of time to actually learn how to float without them. Actually, I'll come to that in a minute. But anyway, so they turned up with these flippers. And I looked at them and I said, they won't work. And these three men, and they were archetypally dressed in white coats. It was quite, it was almost out of Monty Python or the young ones. It was just so, so comic and they, with with their clipboards and they're, oh, no, he knows nothing. He's a little boy, pat, pat, pat on the head. So I get into the swimming pool with my mother and there's a lovely picture. And the, the flippers are designed for feet and the flipper follows the same uh, angle as your foot would go in. Um, and of course, because I don't have ankles or knees, the only way that I can move my legs is forwards or backwards. So not very far backwards. So actually, the only way I can do it lying on my front is to bring my legs up to my tummy. And as soon as I did that, the flipper, which was uh, an extension like a foot, just propelled me backwards. But which is what I thought it would do. It was just hilarious. And of course, they harumphed her as we pointed out that it didn't work and, and wandered off and didn't say, sorry, didn't apologize to me or my mother for a wasted trip. But just that was the attitude of the 1960s. Just, you know, we know best. You haven't a clue. The fact that you're the world's expert on your own disability is completely and utterly irrelevant.
1: <laughs> yeah. Only you know yourself best and how your body works you and someone to come in and tell you. and. Disabilities are so unique to the person who has them as well.
0: They are, yeah. I've got um, because I've got one arm shorter than the other. It makes all sorts of things quite, quite different. You know, it's not. Um, I favour putting things on my left hand side because my left arm is shorter. Simple things like that. So whenever waiters put glass of water for the right hand, I always have to move it over to the left.
1: You touched on an an interesting point there about how someone cannot know these things about you. So how do you navigate through life where the majority of the people won't see these small things that you have made in your life, um, these little adaptations that are unique to you?
0: How do I cope with that? Or or how is it best?
1: How how can anyone navigate uh, an interaction with you to make sure that your needs are met when they don't know the full story of of everything that you've lived through in the in the last 50 60 years
0: i think the first thing to do is not to make assumptions because um, and second one is to ask i've learned in life just to ask um, i don't understand what it's like to be visually impaired or um, or other impairments. And therefore I ask. So, uh, and I try my hardest and I've played tennis with a world blind tennis champion and fascinating to hear her perspective um, and how in some ways she talks about how different she is to somebody who is much more frightened about what's around her. So um, asking is the key. Accepting that sometimes we're all moody, we're all moody. And there will be times when you can't be bothered to do the washing up, Tom, and the times that you can't believe that you didn't do the washing up, you know. So we're never we never address the problem the same every single day. I don't think we we're not, you know, as humans, we're not rational all the time. One or two might be, but um so Understanding that, yeah, I want some help today and I didn't want it yesterday is also part of the human uh, life story, I suppose. Uh, Empathy, understanding, but asking is the simple one. Um, I have been known to be slightly cheeky. When I got to Trinity Hall, Cambridge, there was um, a set of double doors leading in leading into a, a short corridor oh, and then there was another set of double doors and these were swing doors and there was the kitchen on the right and the dining hall on the left and there's an, a distance that is polite for people to hold open the door um, any door for you if I were if you were right behind me Tom I'd hold the door if you were 10 yards behind me I'd probably think that it wasn't the right thing to do. I was 15 yards away and this family held the door and it was clearly slightly beyond the need. So I thanked them profusely when I got to the door and then skipped ahead to the next double doors and held them open for them. That's, I suppose, my uh, slightly humorous, slightly cheeky, slightly naughty way of... Uh, giving myself some
1: room for breathing. <laughs> yeah, you can't fault someone for wanting to do a good thing. No, and and take take a good make a good action. But do you ever felt? Do you ever feel that people think you are a person in need? Oh, uh, when I worked as a solicitor in London,
0: um, sometimes I would take the bus to the tube because it saved me. 10 minutes walk. And I remember getting on this bus once, and the old route masters with the old platform at the back. If the bus was full, I would often stand on the platform in the corner because I was it was just, it was safe in the corner. There was, there was a place that you could hide away. Anyway, I was there, and we came to the, I think it was the second stop, and it was the third stop that I wanted to get off at. And this guy very, very gently, kindly, firmly lifted me off the platform and plonked me on, on the pavement. And I I got off the bus and I just laughed. Um, and all these people around me were looking, what, what? what's he laughing at? And this guy walked off and gave me a cheery wave. And I just said, I didn't want to get off at of this stop. <laughs> uh, so... How could I be cross with him? Because he just, in his own head, he'd done a fantastically good deed.
1: There must be people out there, though, that have a similar condition, for instance, let's say, and things like that might happen to them regularly. And they must get annoyed by people not realising that they have their own independence. Yes. um,
0: I think if they can assert their own independence, which... I think is comes from within. Um, um, sometimes it it can be part of the impairment. You might not be able to speak fast enough or with the right sort of wit. So um, yes, I can see how frustrating it could be.
1: Should the best thing to be to is is to assume if someone wants help that they will ask for it, and not to assume to give someone help that if but, you think that they might need of
0: know, it. Knowing my family and knowing my friends. I've got one friend who's hopeless at asking for help. And quite often he needs probably emotional help, support, but whatever. Well, I don't think us, especially men, are particularly good at asking for help. So it's a very difficult one. I don't think you can, it's again making an assumption that, and sometimes I want to be asked for help and sometimes I don't, because we're irrational and we're we have emotions, and I think that that's really it. Doesn't help people. I think offering, but offering to help, but in a in a would it be helpful if I helped? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it, 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 almost making it a joke, almost uh, like asking permission, I, permission, permission. Can I ask you if you need help?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, there's no answer because every situation is different because our emotions are different, the people are different. Um, If one can do it with humour and a smile, a smile always helps.
1: So growing up, who were your sporting heroes? Billy Beaumont, straight off, number one.
0: He is? He was the captain of England rugby. Um, He uh, wasn't the biggest player, but played in the second row. He had this amazing ability to be um, wherever it was needed to be. He read the game remarkably well. Fantastic leader of men, I've heard. Um, yeah, yeah. so And then went on to captain a team on the question of sport and then became uh, RFU chairman and president. So, you know, he's been... He's done, and world rugby. He's been, um, and yeah, there was one moment in he, a game in Paris and he went was taken off uh, with a leg injury. And um, he came back on after about five minutes and his leg was just plaster, plastered up with bandages, just wrapped, wrapped, mummified. And somebody commented, oh, they've just screwed another leg on. And if that was the sort of player he was, you could—I mean, obviously they hadn't, but you could imagine that they might have done. <laughs> Which, of course, from my perspective, tickled
1: me as well. Did you ever have any exposure to any role models within disability sport? No, that's probably the the biggest
0: change I think that's happened in my lifetime. There were no role models. There was. Um, in the 1960s, 70s, even 80s, really. I um, mean, it's only more recently, you know, with Johnny Peacock in the early 2000s, um, Ellie Simmons and and others. Um, Alfie Hewitt now, I think, is a fantastic role model. There's various different ones.
1: But this all boils back down to the fact that there was a complete lack of there was inclusivity no. in any sport. So no one could become role models because there was no access or availability yeah. back then.
0: No, there was no access. There wasn't even... So access implies a thought process that... You know, um, yeah. It, did you study Japanese at school, Tom? No. Why not? It wasn't available to me at the time. It wasn't even on your radar, was it? No. That, if that is a way of putting it to you. Yeah, you know, that it wasn't even... I, I, there was no access to it. There was no even thought of having access to it.
1: So now you see likes of Johnny Peacock and Eddie Simmons. How, looking back, do you, if you'd have had those when you were growing up as a teenager?
0: Well, we, we we saw, I suppose the first one was Tanny Grey-Thompson, Grey-Thompson, who's
1: yeah. the most wonderful
0: lady. I have had the pleasure of meeting her a few times. Um, she's a fantastic lady and a wonderful role model. But she is she was a, a wheelchair athlete. And wheelchair athletes dominated the disability scene until ooh, quite quite recently. I mean, it, I would say, you know, Johnny Peacock was probably one of the first who was not a wheelchair athlete. I'm trying to think of the other ones going back. But, you know, the, uh, um, so even then, you know, it was... Uh, I, There wasn't anybody outside of the the narrow world of wheelchair. It wasn't Paralympic sport. It was wheelchair sport. There was a few... I suppose swimming did have its... uh, There was some very, very fine swimmers. But one of the things about swimming is that you tend not... You tended not to see the, the disability when they were
1: in the water anyway. If you'd have had the likes of the Johnny Peacock or the Ellie Simmons of the world growing up, how do you think that might have shaped your life going forward?
0: I've thought about this quite a lot and I don't think that it would have made an enormous difference, primarily because of where I came from, a middle class background. Uh, My father was a a barrister and became a judge. Um, My sister ended up being a barrister and I ended up being a solicitor. And I think that it was expected that I would become a lawyer. Law was a very safe, a good way to earn good amounts of money and therefore balancing that certainty or apparent certainty against the unlikelihood of being really successful in a niche growing area of sport. Um, I don't think that the financial... Uh, Ideas of it would have been sensible, so I was going down the the vocational route of becoming a solicitor, becoming a lawyer that would earn enough money to keep myself um, and look after myself and that's the path that I took um, I became a uh, a solicitor in london I became. Uh, then after seven eight years, I moved to cam- come to Cambridge, um, and then I had a career change at the age ooh, about thirty five. Um, I I then was offered a role of redeveloping the village of Papworth just outside of Cambridge. It was the most fascinating role. It was for a charity, so. Which was helping disabled people. So it was like becoming a property developer with a clear conscience because all the profit was going to go into charitable activities. So I did that for 13 years and then I became a consultant.
1: At that point, when you were as you said about thirty five having a career change, did that seem to signify a turning point in in people with disabilities being included? In conversations, in planning, in in a, in a direction in life, and having a seat at the table.
0: I think there was a much greater yes, sudden realization. We shouldn't do this all for people. We sh- we should try to find people who can actually help do it. You know, we can do it with um, my particular role. Probably didn't need my disability knowledge that much, although when it came to designing i actually understood a lot more about the design issues than your average person did um to try and create a village that would be accessible my my boss the chair of the uh, the foundation that i was uh, running um he had a fantastic idea that design it for a double buggy as if you're a mother of two children in a double buggy And then once you've designed that, then try and design it out again so that nobody realizes that you've designed it specially for people. I'm a great believer in that, that, you know, you shouldn't be, you know, I'm not a great fan of a ramp up the straight up the middle. That can ruin some architecture. What I would like is a ramp built into the steps at an angle, which quite a number of places have done, which is tastefully done and there's an alternative route, but straight up the front, you know, it's just designing it in a way that gives alternatives, but doesn't actually say, this is for disabled people. Um, so I did, yeah, there was a, there was a weather change. Um, I think one of the problems was that because, going back to the head teacher at the special needs school there weren't enough disabled people who had got the skills or been taught and probably had the skills but didn't have, have the education to get to the stand the those sort of positions that would allow them uh, to get to, to lead those sort of organisations there weren't enough of us
1: i've been in your home for a few hours um, this morning and i Struggle to see any adaptations that are within your home. There must be maybe one or two. But really what I can see is just you're living a life as independently as anyone else in any normal circumstances. Uh, there are. There, it's the point about
0: uh, designing it out. the The taps. I can't usually reach taps because they're too far away from me if I lean from the front. So we've put them. So I go from the side. You just didn't think about that. So I, so I can reach the taps and the uh, the faucet swings round. Um, we've got a couple. There's a microwave which comes out on a trolley. Um, there's a few other things. So my, my wife always complains that I don't cook enough. And this kitchen was designed so that I could actually cook. Um, I'm just too lazy. Does that make me an ordinary sixty-two-year-old bloke, or does it make me lazy, or does it make me disabled? I don't know. <laughs> There's a couple of drawers over there that you could, if you pulled out, you'd see that they're they're designed for me to be able to put things on at a lower level. And the other one, which is really annoying at the moment, is that our oven is a side-opening oven um, because that, if you have a uh, Top-down oven. It means that you you can't get close enough if you've got short arms to the actual stuff. Hot stuff is really problematic. Um, uh, I I can boil a kettle and I use a towel to hold the ke- kettle and cover my paw. So I'm pretty very very careful when I do it but it's not entirely safe. They're not designed. Um, I've seen some kettles which are tippers and the rest of it. But the trouble is that they're really difficult to fill with the water. You have to, you have to detangle them from the, the tipping device and so on. And it's always like, like life. It's, you know, why do people eat pizzas and ready meals? Because it's easier. I think there is an inherent thing in humans. Where is it laziness, or is it just
1: that's convenient? Yeah, the shortest path, minimal resistance. Throughout your career, uh, in as an adult, did you maintain an active lifestyle back then? When I left Paisner Co,
0: the first firm that I worked for, uh, the partner at my drinks leaving party said. Uh, I don't know how John does it. He has the most uh, full life that I know of anybody at, in law. He's always doing something in addition to his legal career. I was, yeah, I was enjoying London to the full.
1: What kind of things were you doing to keep active back then?
0: So I joined a gym um, and used to swim and work out. Um a friend of mine helped me get a deal at the time, which, again, in those days, the disability stuff was it wasn't formal. But um, a guy was deputed to help me whenever I went round the gym, so they would help me with the machines, and actually that was really, really um, beneficial, so that I could do all the machines. So it was just moving them into position and and sometimes I'm moving the the, the weights. So I attempted
1: to lift much lower weights. I
0: coxed, as in rowing.
1: So I was going to say, those, the swimming, the gym, uh, they're both solitary activities. You're doing them. They're not team sports.
0: No. Team sports was always regarded as quite difficult. I did cox when I was at Cambridge uh, until I was banned from bumps. It was declared that it was too dangerous because... I couldn't fend off the boat that was chasing us. So bumps races are literally what they sound sound like. You chase the boat in front of you and you try and bump them before the boat behind you bumps you. And it can get quite messy. Um, and they were worried that I would not be able to protect myself from a boat from behind. Um, I've oscillated throughout my life as to whether I thought that that was the right decision or not. Uh, At the age of 62, I'm probably becoming more cautious. I think it's probably right. Different times I was incensed and sometimes I was thinking that it was right. But I did that. I played croquet. Um, uh, I played croquet at college and at home. I actually once played in a game with the eighth ranked player in the world. And that was a real eye-opener. Um, but no, I, I was prevented from being involved in, in, in participating in team sports. So I've always missed that.
1: So one of the things that you've done in your life is to uh, found a, a charity, to start a charity, to try and change that. It's power to inspire. Um, tell me about the story of what inspired you to start
0: that up. My friend, Tim Martin, who was a fellow lawyer at Durrant PS, actually, we joined on the same day. Tim took him five years, culminating in the 2012 Olympics, to actually persuade me to do a triathlon relay, an able-bodied triathlon relay. And at the Olympics, I agreed to do it. And he said, the good news was that, um, He'd originally told me that it was a mile that I'd have to swim. And then it turned out it was only 1,500 meters. Uh The bad bad news was that it was outdoor in open water swimming. um, And it was going to be at Eaton-Dorney Rowing Lake. Anyway, we got there and we did this triathlon. Uh, He did the bike ride.
1: Had you ever swam in open water before?
0: um, I'd swam on the sea. I'd done various bits. But not that sort of distance. And in a wetsuit? Not really. I did practice before I went there. So I did do some, some training yeah. um, and did do it. And wetsuits are not designed to yeah. do to do that, which is part of my action. So it was really tough. He asked me to do the 1,500 meters in under an hour. Um, in the end, not that I'm competitive, I did it in 53 minutes, 23 seconds. Um <laughs> and our goal was not to come last Uh, he did the bike ride and uh, we got in a friend called Henry Brown to do the run and Henry ran the 10,000 meters in an extraordinary fast 36 minutes wow yeah Yeah, really fast so we beat two hours and we came at 18th out of 27 and we had a blast and the biggest thing was it showed to me that disabled people could have real fun doing sport with non-disabled people. Uh, you just have to create the, the environment and make the rules so that it works.
1: Before you go on, did you were there any problems with you being able to take part in that? Were there any issues?
0: There were some issues. Um, in particular, there were some safety concerns and what have you. And not many... That sort of thing hadn't been done before. So... Um, but we, in particular, Tim talked very well to the organisers and we ended up having a kayaker accompany me. The hardest thing, actually, about outdoor open water swimming for me, I swim on my back and the pesky clouds move. So you can't actually gauge where you're going. You And it's extraordinary on your back how little distance you can see in front of you or behind you or Anywhere, uh, I was really quite shocked at how close I had to be to these ten-foot-high boys before I could see them. Um, anyway, the kayaker was actually in the end all he did was just point and uh, help me by guiding me. Yeah. Um, I did it, in, uh, and um, uh, and we just had a blast. Absolutely and and it, I hopefully it proved to the organizers and others that it could be possible it's just a question of being sensible the one thing that they changed was uh Henry did the run from the water's edge to Tim on the bike the 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 transition the stage is, yeah. yeah because it would have taken me ages to have got my legs on and to have toddled the little distance and it didn't seem really sensible to do that so that was the that was the big reasonable adjustment. I'd raised £20,000 or we had raised £20,000 from doing that. And I was looking around for uh, a charity and I couldn't find one that was really intent on inclusive sport. There are fantastic disability-centric sports charities, but not ones wanting to do disabled with able-bodied sports. And in the end, my wife just turned around and said, look, why don't you set up your own charity? So I did. And it took a year of getting things to going. And then I did another challenge where I did 50 1,000-meter uh, swims in 50 days, in 100, in 100 days in 50 different pools, the 50, 50, 100.
1: Let's talk about that. 50 swims. Yeah. How long were the swims? 1,000 meters. 1,000 meters. 1,000 meters. In a hundred days, yep, and to add on some more complexity to that, you did this around the country, yep, talking at different schools, yep and clubs along the way, yep, it
0: was absolutely brilliant, bonkers, mad, lots of traveling, which was very tiring. the traveling was really tiring some of the some of the days and weeks were really hard i did uh I did six swims in one week, which is a lot. Because I did a double at uh, one school, I swam a thousand meters, talked to the kids, then swam another thousand meters, and then talked to another lot of kids. That uh, and I finished off that week at Millfield, and I can remember being really, really tired. Fortunately, I got some dri- um, a driver helped me. That you know, a volunteer that drove me. Um, it was yeah, the people that I met. I had some amazing experiences. I went to a school in Rochdale where there are 200 disabled kids. And I swam there and I did an assembly there. And there were 50 wheelchairs parked up. That was just extraordinary. Um, And brilliant school, brilliant school. And um, I also, I did one at the um, Olympic um, pool in Stratford, which was fantastic. I actually swam, it's 50. Um, it's 25 meters across, so um, <laughs> which I swam widths, which was quite in something. So
1: what What were the reactions from the kids like when you uh, they were seeing you do your swim? Maybe or do your talk? Fantastic! I mean, really, really positive.
0: Some of them said that they, you know, they'd encourage them to swim harder. There was one lad who did the whole thousand meters alongside me in half the time or fraction of the time, but he did it all butterfly. That is serious. That is serious. Mm. Um, So that inspired him. Um, My favourite story, though, is I went to a special needs school in Tottenham, uh, just under the eaves of the old Tottenham Hotspur football stadium. And um, I did a swim with the special needs kids from the school. And this very, very disabled boy came up afterwards and he said that he had never had the confidence to go in the deep end of the swimming pool until he'd seen me swimming in the deep end of the swimming pool. And that morning I'd done it so he felt that he could go and do it. And he did it and swam for the first time properly. And his smile would have lit up London. And that inspires me on a daily basis.
1: What a turnaround that is from the days when you were growing up and you had no role models at all, no one, no access to to see what you could see was capable from what other people were doing. And now you've gone on tour 50 different places, inspiring disabled people, able-bodied people in what is possible.
0: And it's at a very... Um, ground-level base, really. I mean, some of the extreme sports people, I have a huge admiration for them. I've met a guy who's done phenomenal ocean swims, but it's not really relevant to the average punter because not many of us can contemplate going and swimming in the ocean these long distances. Whereas... Most most of us actually face our own barriers. That lad who'd got the problem, um, it was actually interesting. It was mental. And you could see the head teacher was going, how many more things did we assume that he can't do because of his impairment, whereas actually it's because what he believes. Um, and I think that that's very true of all of our lives. Um, we all make assumptions that we can't do something or. We can't, um, you know, I can't learn French. Or my grandfather has told me that I'm useless at maths because I got one sum wrong once. And however many hundreds of others tell me that I am really good at maths, I've got that little critic going, I can't do maths, so therefore I can't do maths. And it shows that it's that mental thing. So if we can help people overcome those mental barriers, you know, then
1: that's hugely
0: valuable for the world.
1: So, your charity, Power to Inspire, which you set up, tell me about what it aims to do. Well, the strap line is inclusion through sport, getting people to
0: do sport together. And it's not just about disability um, and ability, it's about men and women playing sports together. Um, we had the Cambridge University women's rugby captain saying that it was the first time that they had been treated equally at one of our games. Um, it's also about getting state school and independent school kids to meet each other. It's older people and younger people. It's everybody, regardless of race, religion, whatever. Um, so that's what our ethos is. We do it through three things. We have powerhouse games, which are multi-team events where each team of six comprises of two young um, students, usually university students, but it has been rugby players or cricketers. We've been to Lords, we've been to Leicester Tigers. Um, And then you have three uh, school students, one an independent, one a state and one a a special needs school uh, pupil. And then we get in a corporate sponsor, uh, volunteer. So a company sponsors it and 12 of their People come along and play the games and get enormous out of it. Those are our powerhouse games, and they're incredibly popular and huge amounts of fun. Then we do games to inspire. Primarily, I go into schools and teach mainstream schools that inclusive and adapted sports exist. There are an increasing number of SEN kids in mainstream schools, often SEN special educational needs or some. You know, yeah. Um, and they often get left out when it comes to um, uh,
1: sport and PE. So your aim is to bring together everyone, everyone, regardless of any ability or disability. Yeah. And show them that there are games and sports that they can play all together. And we give permission to
0: change the rules to reflect the abilities of people Um playing so if you ever watch kids in a playground you'll always be amazed at how they change the rules to reflect the abilities of those who play if somebody's winning the
1: game too easily they'll make it harder for them that's what we do That's so interesting you say that that's good this goes back to how you as a child knew yourself best and how you could adapt your life and it's children again knowing how they can make everything inclusive because Let's face it, children have a disability themselves because they are smaller. They're not as stronger than the adults playing the adult games. So on a playground, they are doing exactly that thing. They are adapting everything, regardless of if they have a disability or not, just so that they know that they can achieve the the sport, the, the, the play, the game.
0: There was a girl at one of our Games to Inspire who able-bodied girl, and she described boccia, which is the Paralympic game, a bit like bowls. She described it as the best game she'd ever played because she was a small girl who was not going to be any good at any of the sports that we traditionally play. But that one, it was all about technique, tactics, and skill. And she just loved it.
1: So tell me about some of the other games that you play that you've adapted so that everyone can take part together. So we play... um, The New Age
0: curling, which is a bit like curling on ice, but whilst stones have ball bearings underneath. Nice. uh, Very competitive and actually often won by the smallest girl, which I always love, um, who doesn't throw the stone or push the stone too hard. Uh, We play goalball, which is a Paralympic blindfolded game where um you, you listen for the bell in the ball and you try and propel it into the opposing team's goal and try and stop them from scoring. We play sitting volleyball, which is an amputee-designed game from the Second World War um, and is a Paralympic sport, and it's incredibly fast. But you can play it with different balls. We play it with balloons, um, beach balls, and all the way up to volleyballs. A game that I claim to have invented, which is sitting netball, which is pretty much what it says on the tin, other than the uh, there are three rules. You can't move with the ball, which is like netball. Um, You have to have your bottom on the floor at all times. You can shuffle about when you haven't got the ball. And we create a a zone around the nets, which are low-level nets that you can't go in. And the great thing about that is you can flex the size of that exclusion zone to reflect the abilities. So I've actually had thirty-five aside at, um, at a an adults uh, charity netball event, playing between the semifinals and finals, and we had the six yards away, so it was a really difficult throw to get it in. So we play those quick cricket, walking football, touch rugby, uh, sometimes uh, table foot table cricket um we played we have played bad versions
1: of badminton and
0: various other games
1: so you're bringing together disabled and able-bodied people to play a game together yeah there's no segregation there's not able-bodied games disabled body games no why is it so important that there's not that segregation people love to be included you would not be like to be
0: disincluded or excluded, um, Tom, because you've got red hair. Doesn't mean that you're not able to participate. Um, and it's it's that feeling of inclusion. I think humans are quite we're tribal and we like to be part of the tribe. We don't like to be sat on the side. And therefore we really, really enjoy being part of it. Um a lot of the disabled kids report back that it's the first time that they've felt genuinely included. They're not a lot of the games are done where the disabled kids are playing them and everybody else is watching, which feels a little Hunger Games ish, really. It's a bit patronizing in some ways. Um, and there's place for it, because that's a pathway to Paralympic stuff, but it's not
1: the only way of doing it i guess this goes into when things start to become competitive we are talking about paralympics there needs to be these certain rules to make sure that there's some kind of level playing field for all competitors within those certain bands but what you're doing is not is, is okay we can have some fun competition but it's it's about the game it's about the inclusion inclusivity yeah all being together
0: it, it absolutely is it's about well I keep on telling the, the volunteers and others that we're not playing for a million pounds um and therefore it really doesn't matter if the ball is out or in i mean it, it, it it's you know about having real fun um nobody i mean winning any game you know six love six love or twenty three nil or whatever. It just gets boring after a while. We always love the competition. And therefore, if you can make it really competitive, if you win 5-4 at anything, it it's great fun. And everybody enjoys up to the 4-4. Four, four. <laughs> uh, I mean, and if you lose, but next time you might win. And yeah, it's, it's in the enjoyment of... And your stone, your stone, your botchable, your shot in sitting volleyball or whatever might have been the key
1: bit. It definitely feels that so many sports that we know of today that we see on TV where there's paid professionals, they lose that love of the game of just actually playing because it is so competitive. There's now monetary value attached to every game that they play. And I think we as 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 fans of that sport who maybe practice and play it in our spare time can forget that it's not about the winning and the losing it's it is about just taking part being active being part of a gang feeling included that's fundamentally what sport is all about
0: absolutely i mean i play
1: golf and and
0: most of the time you don't do what you want to do but there's always that promise there's the promise that you and every so often you hit an absolutely brilliant shot and it's that promise of those moments it's that moment when you 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 do a pass in football or you you know you do that tackle in rugby or whatever you know whether you're playing third 15 or vets or whatever it's um yes our our, our perspective, perception is so disorientated by the fact that we're watching you know not point naught percent of the population's ability you know that and and you do hear that most of the um, the top footballers and others that it, it's it's the winning not the participating not the game that they really enjoy the pressures are enormous you know um often with golf you know i've heard that actually making the cut is probably the most stressful thing Possibly in all of sport, and nobody, you know, no fans really, you know, you don't follow that that particular. You you concentrate on the leaders. Um, um, I, I I do think that well, the trouble is money distorts everything. So, and we forget how much fun just play is. Yeah. kids, the most thing that they do is play. What we're just doing is providing the
1: opportunity for them to play in a good environment and crucially they need that opportunity in order to have the fun if that's not there then they just can't take part the uh, one of the most fun things i've seen you do uh, was in uh, the lead up to the rio olympics you challenged yourself to try every single sport that the olympics and paralympics had yeah uh, i've watched the video of you doing it online it just looked like you were having an incredible amount of fun partaking on it. Uh, I, I, could, there's, I think there was over 30 different types of activities. 34. 34. I won't read them all out. I'll read some. So triathlon that you mentioned, badminton, basketball, tennis, uh, taekwondo, horse riding, sailing, goal ball, You mentioned that. Trampolining, synchronized swimming. I loved your uh, drop kick you did in rugby. Looked fantastic. I was in awe watching that. Water polo, kayaking, weightlifting. You threw a hammer as well, which looks amazing. D- tell me about your experience doing that. Well, first of all, why did you want to do that? It was um, the team at
0: Power to Inspire came up with the idea, actually, and they said, well, you could do this. And I thought it was bonkers, but um, then I thought it could be great fun had the key was actually getting an a, a, an arm attachment that we could then attach various uh, things to so um table tennis bat badminton racket and then tennis racket and that was that was crucial um then from there we just said oh well it will be fun some highlights would be playing my very first game of tennis competitive game of tennis with a guy called Dylan Alcott, who's uh, a legend in Australia. He's a Paralympic triple gold medalist in quad wheelchair tennis. It would be a bit like you, Tom, playing with Roger Federer in your first ever game of mm. competitive tennis. It was just awesome and just fantastic. Uh, he's worth looking up. He's just the most amazing guy. Um, uh, you mentioned Taekwondo. That has to be down at the bottom end. I am the perfect height to be kicked in the head. And, <laughs> and I can't score because I don't have a lower leg. Um, and I can't reach with my arms. So not, not the sport for me. Um, but how did it feel taking part in that, giving it a go? I learned a lot, actually. I, I learned a lot more in judo and wrestling. Judo, I wish I'd actually been taught at the age of 12, 13, because uh, I could have actually learned how to defend myself properly, um, it, which is all about using the any assailant's weight and you just turn it against them by, you just bend and you flick them. And you don't have very long, but you can get them into a neck hold. And that would have been quite useful. It would have given me a lot more confidence that I, because you are vulnerable as a disabled person. Um, uh, but yeah, talking about p- participating. I, water polo jumped out at me. The camaraderie amongst water polo players is just extraordinary. Um, just, I think it's because there's a common enemy, which is the water and everybody then comes out of it. You know, you, you've, you, you, know, you've battled the water and your opponents but primarily it's the water because it it's incredibly difficult to get yourself high enough up out of the water to throw the ball when you see them throwing the ball you don't realize
1: quite how much
0: work they've had to do to get themselves even a couple of inches out of the water and some of the guys can do it a foot out of the water which is just extraordinary um what other ones hammer throwing i've got to pick hammer throwing my friend and coach Mick Shortland um, claims the throw that I did at the age championships at Bedford. It was part of a proper competition. It was a fantastic eye-opener. I was treated as like a proper competitor. I was a guest. They, others were all under 16 champions who were throwing the hammer, 35 metres up to 50 metres. I was throwing a lighter one. And I set my personal best, which is always what you can only hope to do. And I threw it 13 and a half metres. Wow. Um, And my coach has claimed it as a world record because there's nobody else like me who's ever thrown the hammer. Right. Unfortunately, Guinness Book of Records haven't recognised it. But I think it's actually primarily so he can say that he's coached a world record holder.
1: I'm happy to recognise it. That certainly seems like a, a, a worthy achievement to celebrate. Yeah,
0: it was. It was just to just go into the whole process, and it's such an eye opener. You go into the the room beforehand. You've given your numbers. You're you know, You're herded into a little pen, and mm. then you go out and you troop behind each other, and and then you get warm up throws.
1: It's fascinating to see it. Fr- it was like being a fan from within. It is so interesting. So you've tried so many of these different sports and fundamentally, until you can try something, you touched on this earlier about asking if I'd ever study Japanese. If it's not available to me, then it's just not going to be on my radar. You've given yourself more than 30 different opportunities to try something completely new. And you never know what you've been able to achieve unless you try it and give it a go. And this is... It's a, it's a bigger issue about sport in general, about accessibility to anyone for all types of sports. There's certain sports on here that I've never had access to and I've never tried nice. And how would I know if I am have a talent in it or could be any good at it? Steve Cram famously said, I think at a talk once, it's like, who would know that they're any good at the pole vault? You just don't know until you try. Absolutely. I've never tried the pole vaults. It was never there no. for me as a as a kid. And what I find so inspiring about you trying to challenge yourself to all these Olympic sports, but also f- having this charity that provides access is that you're getting, letting people just have a go at something and, and surprise themselves with what they can achieve.
0: One thing that I would add is that people believe that they can't afford sport. But there are phenomenally easy ways of getting into virtually all the sports that I know. Um, Kayaking, which is one that I've taken up, you can become a member of a club for probably less than two pounds a week and have access to all the boats, all the equipment, the rest of it, and insurance. So it's, you know, people assume that you can't do things. Rowing is another one which people think, oh, it's very expensive. It's not if you want to try it out and get going. And then you can see if you like it. Um, Like all sports, if you want to, you can play golf at a cheap level, you can end up paying an awful lot of money. Horses, the same, everything is. But at the trying it out level, there are loads and loads and loads of ways of getting involved without having to pay very much money. And I would urge people to not use that as an excuse.
1: You talked about the adaptations that you had to make to have uh, to do your Road to Rio challenge. How accessible are some of these act- adaptations to people with a disability?
0: So one of the things that we got a grant for to do uh, five or six of the um, things, including archery, we had a bow adapted um, and really proud of the fact that the adaptations are now on a website that anybody around the world can actually download for free and all you just have to do the measurements and you can put the different measurements in and then print out with a, a 3d printer the the plastic adaptions that you need for uh, missing limbs or whatever so in we've actually hopefully helped people around the world um, have the opportunity because three D printing is so easy to do wherever you are, and with a little bit of help from somebody on changing the numbers on um, to reflect making it bespoke, then anybody can have a go.
1: And it sounds like people can have the control into adapting something their way, which you didn't have when you were younger. Absolutely, yeah. I uh, I really regret
0: that you know. For my ex- example, my golf clubs. Nobody had the brainwave, but they make them longer for me now rather than shorter. Everybody expects me to be have them shorter, uh, but my golf clubs are longer because I tuck it under my left arm. Um, I had a golf lesson this week and I was hitting the ball 120 yards, which, and it's dead straight. <laughs> well, as my coach said, one of the great advantages, I have fewer moving parts, no wrists, elbows, um, knees, all that uh, ankles to wobble the club. So I just hit it dead straight.
1: What did you learn about what was possible for you from taking on all these different sports?
0: I think it taught me
1: that my physical limitations
0: weren't a barrier. I could actually adapt the sports and do the sports um, regardless, I mean, obviously, there were one or two that I wouldn't rush back to do, but even by doing those, I learned where my love of different sports would be. So, um, that's why I now play tennis, golf, I go kayaking, swim. Um, those are my big ones at the moment, and I, I, I think it should, you know, by trying them out, um, and realizing that. Yeah, so the tennis racket has gone through five iterations, and I'm hoping to go to get to a sixth to make it much lighter because I'm actually now playing well enough to justify the cost. Um, but no, I think the biggest thing was to learn that I could actually play tennis. I've never ever thought that I could play tennis, and I love
1: it. You mentioned kayaking. You've had a, a love for it. You've taken your love for kayaking to a new level recently this year taking on a multi-day endurance adventure, kayaking down the Thames. Saw part of a fundraising effort for Power to Inspire. You called it the 108 Challenge. It was 108 miles down the River Thames. Why did you want to take that on?
0: I was persuaded to do one last fundraising challenge for Power to Inspire, it being our 10th anniversary this year. And I said to our chief executive, Alex Labour, and I said, um, it has to be something that I really enjoy. And I thought about those four sports and I'd done the swimming ones. And I decided that I really wanted to sit down to do it. <laughs> so that precluded golf and tennis. And so that left kayaking. Um, and we talked with British Canoeing and they gave us a lot of help. And we talked to the Environment Agency And we ended up coming up with a, um, from roughly Cricklade to um, Eton, which is where I did my original triathlon swim. And that's 108 miles. And so 108 was born. And the great thing about the 108 challenge is you and your listeners, Tom, can all do their own 108 challenge for Power to Inspire for us. I don't know what yours would be, 108 sit-ups, 108 Cakes baked, 108 ice creams eaten. Yeah, um, 108 laps of the garden, 108 uh, steps climbed, 108 seconds of plank, 108 meters on a, a space hopper, which somebody's <laughs> done. So you can do it whatever you like. Yeah, all very challenging, but also achievable. Yeah, yeah, and you can a, very adaptable. You can do it so that you can, and the 108 miles in the kayak, it was a double kayak, was uh, challenging for me. It was really challenging, but I thought it was doable as well. And it also demonstrated very visibly uh, what we're all about with me being in the boat with somebody who was mostly not disabled. We had one prosthetic uh, leg user uh, who I know through the local um, clinic here,
1: um, and he and I powered down the Thames. He was, he really went for it. <laughs> so there's two of you together in a double kayak. Yeah. Eight days down the river Thames, one of the most beautiful rivers we have in the UK. What was the adventure like? Day one, you're getting into a kayak.
0: I was nervous. I was very nervous, um, cause I didn't know quite what I'd taken on, but, uh, the birthday boy, Tim Boyden, who set off with me on the first session. Um, he was 76 on the day. Was uh, he, he was fantastic. And we had very great help from two ladies from the Cotswold Canoe Hire Company, Edith and her colleague. And it was just, it was a sunny day. It rained immediately. We set off actually, and then stopped about five minutes later. And that was six and a half miles. And that, that was a gentle introduction. The following day was tough. That was about 18 miles with three different paddlers, including Mike, the, um, amputee. Mm. Um, and then on the Tuesday, we had a British rower, British national rower and who handed the baton, the baton to Ollie Cook, who is a world champion rower, who handed the baton to, uh, Oxford University. Water. Oh, it's a canoe polo player, and actually, it was really interesting to see how how his technique of being a a real kayaker uh, actually made it um, quite you know, just how much easier it was for him without the effort. Both Nick and Ollie had put in an awful lot of effort. Um, we got rained on uh, really heavily on the Wednesday um, during a BBC Radio Cambridgeshire interview, which was hilarious.
1: Were you in the boat at the time? It, yeah, I
0: was in the boat. Mm. And they told us to move away from the tree because the uh, reception on the telephone wasn't good enough. So we moved into an unprotected area and got absolutely soaked as we give an interview, which was amusing. Uh, the lock keepers were fantastic all the way down. Um first one we went to said you're late we've been expecting you uh but most of the time they were fantastic he was just joking i mean but they were just brilliant and some of the locks are really really pretty um mm. uh, the river gets broader it changes every hundred meters um so that you you're always looking at something new we met paddle boarders punts racing punts yeah uh uh, there was a four from uh, uh, Falcon Canoe Club kayaking four, which was great. Um, just fabulous. And yeah, a couple of trustees joined in and we've raised lots of money.
1: How did you cope with the physicality of doing a multi-day uh, endurance event? I had trained quite well, but probably not as much as I'd have liked. Uh,
0: my right hamstring got a bit tight but fortunately care of jigsaw um, physio they actually helped me out with a a massage on the Wednesday night which was really 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 important Um, lots of fluid I think actually that was the biggest thing I had to drink an immense amount of water and fluid Um, sadly I didn't lose any weight because the team kept on plying me with all the wrong stuff which of course I wanted to eat so Mm. um that's why you do it right yeah that's the real reason you do it so you can eat what you want and and they bandaged my arms up my my left paw in particular got quite
1: sore but with lots of bandages on it's
0: just my mere
1: detail so talk me through the adaptations that you had to make in order to make that journey uh, with the so kayak, with the, the kayaking paddle, which is not dissimilar to the stand here, with
0: yeah, um, had a ring attached to it, which had been made back for the um, the Road to Rio challenge, and we'd actually changed the ring, but the the attachment had had been made for that, and it I could hold it, hook my elbow into it, uh, right elbow, and that worked a treat, uh, no problem. The left one, we had to go through a number of iterations and basically was a, a ring that went round my left paw at right angles to the uh, paddle handle. And that needed to rotate because as uh, you never actually pull directly backwards
1: um,
0: with your arm. You always pull downwards or upwards or slightly at an angle so that worked um and i was able to paddle with that um i now know what i would change and we're going to work and i've got somebody who is happy to help me adapt it to make it even better these things you know tennis rackets have been evolving over years and years and years. uh, it, I'm a probably at the wooden tennis racket stage and I want to get to the the latest version of, of
1: my adaption for the paddle. It's an interesting point. So much of sports and the adaptations have been made for the able body, but lesser so for disabled body. Yeah, partly
0: because we're all very different. Yes. So that's where... Uh, the designs, sharing the designs, making them publicly available and allowing people to print their own versions through 3D printing seems to me a very obvious way to go. Um, I will see if I can get this design once we've sorted it out up onto that same website so that anybody around the world can have it made. Yeah.
1: What does it take to plan a multi day? Trip. I think the biggest thing was, first of all, we had 21
0: different paddlers. So it's liaising with 21 different people who are coming on a specific time for a specific date. I have to say, they were fantastic and um, all of them uh, got there in time, except for two who uh, were completely stymied by train strikes and cancellations. Um, but they then still managed to get there. So I don't know how they did it. Um, that was through the help of Alex Label and our chief executive who did all the logistics on the, the week. The other thing is we had a huge help from British Canoeing and the Environment Agency. The Environment Agency in particular uh, contacted all the lock keepers and told, us, told them that we were coming and it made an immeasurable difference being able to go through the locks and go down the locks.
1: Because it's, it's, it's normally the, an expectation that an able body has to get out of the, ki- the kayak and portage over a lock. No, the expectation is that they're entitled to go through, but they
0: might have to wait. And most people can't be bothered to wait the 15, right. 20 minutes that it might be. Um, otherwise you aren't. Yeah. So most in kayakers get, because they are, don't want to wait, they get into the habit and they don't even think about going through. Whereas for me, it would have been a right pain because I, I would have had to get out of the boat and that means putting on my slippers, as I call them, specially designed f- uh, for kayaking, actually. The, they just slip onto my legs and allow me to do short distances, you know, 50 yards, something like that. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to get out. So, on. But no, the,
1: the, they were great. What were the main highlights you saw or experienced along the way, along the Thames?
0: Arriving at Falcon Canoe Club, where they'd put on a special uh, tea and celebration, and they came out in a flotilla afterwards um, when we swapped um, paddlers. That was just amazing. And looking back and seeing 25 people out on the river, uh behind me. It was really difficult to see them because they were all behind me. I should have got somebody to take a photograph of them and turn around. Where are they based? Um Oxford, yes. So it was that was a really fantastic one. Um paddling with Mike Radford, the prosthetic limb user was great. Absolutely brilliant. Um Chris Page, who I'd done probably the most training with of all the fantastic people from Cambridge Canoe Club who've been really, really supportive and helpful and lent me the boat to do it in. Chris actually joined me on the Thursday and I was a bit low at that point mentally. It's a tough time I'd done. <clears throat> and he had, a we worked it so that he did an eight miles section, which was the longest section. And I really really welcome seeing i just knew that i wouldn't have to worry about the steering i wouldn't have to worry all i had to do was just put put the paddle in put the paddle in put the paddle in and that was mentally that was just just right and came through that one and i was like, uh, okay i've only got three uh, three days two and a half days to do now and that was a a huge moment um just getting to wargrave boating club here um, sort of mm, between Henley and Marlowe uh was just fantastic they again put on a barbecue and came out with about ten of them and that was just lovely and they greeted me with two racing punts who were fantastic um meeting a uh, couple of stand up paddle boarders there's a really beautiful photograph of them um and Louise is a Top um, coach, and she then brought out the following day with her in a double kayak a a lady without a a, a hand. So there were two of us out there paddling, and she's got an artificial arm that grips the paddle. Um, that was a special one. And just oh, seeing a, a kingfisher, seeing a heron actually catch a fish that was mm. special. And some of the just the views and the yeah. The, the greenery was just fantastic
1: you don't get that if you just kind of you know do a quick visit to a river you have to be on the river you have to be immersed in it for hours to be able to get those little unique moments like a kingfisher flying past or the heron catching a fish
0: i would listen say that by being in a kayak you can once or twice we just stopped to have a break and just the silence and the just well it's never silent but the just the no
1: human noise was just fabulous. Just nature, yeah. So, how did it feel arriving on, on the last day in Eton?
0: It was a really weird
1: one. I, the weather was threatening
0: to rain, really rain, and so I was questioning whether everybody on the um, who was meeting us would get absolutely soaked. Um, but it was just, it was just lovely brett um who paddled the last section with me um he was a novice paddler so that was also quite interesting so i was concerned about you know because you can't really steer from the front so you're having to give instructions to the person behind he was brilliant very strong and learned very quickly and uh, that was and it was just lovely seeing the group of people on the on the side and And waving and
1: taking photos and yeah,
0: and they were dodging the goose poo.
1: Where were you you staying en route?
0: I stayed in with my sister right at the beginning, who lives down near Cricklade, about 40 minutes away. And she kindly put me up for the first three nights. And her husband actually gave me a lift. So I didn't have to do so much driving on the first few days. I stayed with friends of my wife's in Oxford on the Tuesday night, um, I stayed in a hotel on the Wednesday night just because we were mo- – just the logistics mm. of moving down. Um, lovely, lovely couple at the George in Pahengborn. Um, And then I stayed in Eton College the last three nights courtesy of Jeremy Macklin, who's our chair. Um, he knows the Vice Provost there. What a place to stay, hey? And it was absolutely fantastic except for the fact that the – uh, the house is actually basically starts on the first floor and the bedrooms are on the second floor and they're double heights, stairs, staircases. So after a, a full day's paddling, as Alex Laybourne put it, our chief executive, it's just
1: active recovery, John, climbing two flights of stairs. So after achieving your 108 miles down the River Thames, what did you learn about... The experience of going on a multi day adventure and why should someone get out there and go on a multi day tour through the land? Seeing and experiencing
0: nature from the river is just without par to me, without equal. It's just fantastic, absolutely beautiful. The number of people and friends that I've made through the trip has just been extraordinary um just fantastic. I mean um uh, Bethany, who is a novice, with complete novice paddler, and she came out and she had her own concerns about whether she would be able to paddle for very far. And her beam of smile as we got out of the kayak at the end and she was just so thrilled and her parents were thrilled. She's a young lady And just, it just, you know, that, that in itself was just fantastic. Um, so meeting people, meeting the guys at, uh, at the accessible boating Thames, that club, and just knowing that there are so many people out there who want to help. They run fantastic accessible boating trips down the Thames. Um, and they would help anybody get into a, into a kayak onto a boat, whatever. Um, Even if you're profoundly disabled, they can get, get you out there in a wheelchair and you can just enjoy the experience of being on the river. So it's making connections. And there is a sense of just pure satisfaction that I've done. so. Not many people have kayaked 108 miles and that's quite nice to be able to put on the internal CV.
1: Yeah, you're right. Yeah. It is, it's nice when you can actually look back and and marvel at your achievements, despite the, however nerve wracking it might be in the initial stages. Sometimes, like you said, it is just about just putting one paddle in, and the other paddle in, and eventually over time you get there. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation. I'm gonna just leave with one one final thought, I suppose. Um, as as that's been the topic of most of our conversation. Um, How can we ensure there is inclusivity in sports for everyone? Well, the simple answer is to support charities like
0: Power to Inspire. Um, Come out and volunteer, get involved. Our games, we always need looking for volunteers particularly from companies and get your company to come and help sponsor and pay for the cost of running the games. It's just having the imagination to actually go back to being a child. And if you've got anybody, if they're older or uh, younger, whether they've got a disability or not, if you want to play a game, play a game and just adapt the rules to make sure that they can be truly inclusive. Um it's no surprise that T20 cricket has suddenly become really popular because it's so much more accessible to all people. And I think no less skillful, it's different, but it's um uh, so it's adapting the game to make sure that everybody we play quick cricket. And it's fantastic to see the kids just, but you have to make it fast and fun. Um So whether it's botcher quick cricket or tennis or whatever there's games out there that everybody can play there are wonderful charities out there not just power to inspire but there are charities that you can go and approach but it's actually having the confidence to pick up the phone and say how can I
1: ask how can I help well thank you John uh, I've loved our conversation I I hope that you mentioned it was your final, fundraising adventure, but I hope it's not your last adventure of sorts. I thought there's many more to come. Thank you. Um my wife keeps
0: on telling me that it's the last fundraising one, but uh I I would love to do some more adventures. We're we're gonna do a lot more kayaking together, we do. So that's one of the reasons why I'm getting the paddle adapted further so that we can go out um we go out in the North Norfolk um creeks and places but you can go anywhere with a a kayak and you can just get away from everybody it's lovely yeah well thank you so much for your time i appreciate it thank you tom